Hey guys, and welcome to a very special edition of the Baluminati Podcast, Blogs in a Half Shell, Podcast Power, Vito, yeah. Seth, no Nate, no Colin, no Steeg, no Giggity, no Nick, no Ryan, it's just Vito and Seth. Just so thanks for listening. We can make it if we try. And by God, are we going to try? Yes, we're going to try. Emphasis on try. So, Illuminati Podcast, sponsored by the beautiful Matrix Hormones. Matrix Hormones. If you're not feeling the way that you want to be, low testosterone therapy for men, erectile dysfunction treatment, biomedical hormone therapy for women. Whether you suffer from low libido, fatigue, mood swings, or muscle loss, your systems won't go away on your own. Call the experts at Matrix Hormones. Matrix Hormones. And Vito, don't forget the phone number is 813-333-2226. 813-333-2226. Just the two of us. I would literally not make it without you. Just the two of us, you and I. <laughs> so um, I guess let's, uh, let's dive in and talk about some football. All right. USF loses a heartbreaker to number 17 Cincinnati, 20 to 17. Seth, I was at the game. It was my birthday. It, it was feeling good all the way up until the, the waning moments of the game. So uh, for those of you who haven't already checked out the uh, TDS film room sponsored by Matrix Hormones, what do we what do we think about that game? What happened? Oh, well, it was it was kind of like you know most birthdays where you're really excited for most of it, and then the sinking realization at the very end that you're getting a year older and closer to death. It was kind of like that. So you know you're pretty excited for most of the game. You're playing pretty well, and then um, at the very end there, Cincinnati comes in and takes it. Uh, I thought they played really well. Um, Cincinnati's a pretty good team, pretty well coached. They took uh, USF was able to take them out of some things they like to do defensively. They're able to move the ball offensively. In, in my opinion, it's really probably two games in a row where statistically, you know, you probably should have won the game. And as we mentioned briefly on the film room at the very end that um, SP Plus, Bill Connolly on ESPN, he kind of will go through the box scores of games and kind of give percentage chances of victory. And he gave Cincinnati a 22% chance to win the game. So with the box score as it was, Cincinnati only wins the game 22% of the time. Unfortunately for USF, uh, last week happened to be part of that 22%. Ugh, as they as they say, yeah, Cincinnati's a good team. They find ways to win. They stuck it out even though it was uh, looking bleak. They the the one thing that got me first half you shut them out. And Cincinnati hasn't been shut out outside of Ohio State all year. Defense came to play. They played hard. A ton of tackles for loss. They mixed it up blitz-wise. The big thing that got me, uh, the series coming out of the half is going to be huge because mm-hmm. Cincinnati and Luke Fickle are really good about making adjustments, and they figured out they can run with Michael Warren up the middle, and uh, they got a touchdown on their, off, their first offensive set. And the problem when you're trying to kick field goals versus touchdowns is if you start missing field goals, that's going to be huge. And yeah. that, to me, them figuring out what they can do Maybe defense gets a little more tired. They'll, they lose a little bit of swagger there, but uh, got to hand to Luke Fickle. He, know, he knows his players. He knows what he's doing, and he's really turned that program around from uh, what Tommy Tuberville left. I mean, what it was three years ago was, or four years ago was the uh, fifty-six to thirty or fifty-six to twenty game when they were up thirty-nine points in the first half or something like that. It's crazy. Yeah, we were all kind of, and we kind of had a feeling. Uh, it was Colin Steeg and I up in the box, um, up in the press box, and we kind of, the our consensus at halftime was, hey, the winning score is going to be in the twenties. Like it was only ten nothing halftime, but you know, we 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 all kind of said, hey, we all think the winning score is going to be in the twenties. So um, USF having a touchdown wiped off the board in the first half uh, really came back to haunt them. Uh, what Cincinnati did a really good job with is. Um, they started running, and if you've read any of our stuff throughout the year, they started running a nub nub tight end look where they put a tight end on one side of the uh, field and then they put three receivers on the other side or um, yeah, they'd have three receivers on the other side, uh, the tight end. So, for instance, the tight end's on the right. You have three receivers on the left. Nobody's outside the tight end on the right. And then you have the quarterback in the back in the backfield. 
um, how USF started playing that is they would only have their corner outside the tight end. Everybody else would be inside the tight end, all the linemen. And Cincinnati was able to make um, some really good plays out of that. Uh, they were able to pin the defensive lineman inside and then run jet motion with the, one of the three receivers coming across to take the corner out of there. And it basically just allowed um, Michael Warren to get the inside zone and just automatically cut it back to where nobody was left because the jet motion took the corner out. The lineman just folded everybody down inside and left some, some holes. And that was kind of the first, that was kind of their wrinkle on that first drive is they were able to come out and do that and they move the ball down the field and then as the game went on, USF adjusted. Uh, we didn't get into this one too much on the film room because it's not really a Cincinnati film room. So USF adjusted and started slanting to the tight end. So USF adjusted and took away um, the Cincinnati's wrinkle in the run game there. But it was still enough to kind of get them untracked and get them going a little bit. And it was just a, just a little kind of a little tweak on stuff they did in the first half. And they're kind of able to steal a touchdown with it on the first drive. I think that's great. Uh, taking a look at what a tendency is of, of the cornerback and saying, let's give this a shot. And I mean, you'll see on the film room, uh, Hop kind of gets beat. McLeod's staring down on, on his weak side, uh, getting leveled and he puts a pinpoint, uh, you know, spiral right in St. Felix's hands for a great, mm-hmm. uh, opening play. I mean, to open the drive like that with the, with the way that the offensive is fairly inconsistent, trying to kind of get rhythm going. Starting out that way and then ending with that Trevon Sands run for a touchdown was definitely huge for them. And I, 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 it, it really getting the ball back and then almost scoring a second touchdown to go up 13 to nothing outside of that penalty. Yeah. That kind of changes the whole timbre of the game. All of a sudden, Jordan McLeod's feeling a rhythm. Yeah. You're up a couple scores. Your defense is, is feeling that swagger with, you know, eight tackles for losses and four sacks. And, now all of a sudden Cincinnati, who wants to run the ball, puts it into Desmond Ritter's hand, who wasn't necessarily having a great game. No, he, USF made him look very kind of ordinary in the passing game. He had one big run that they kind of got before USF adjusted to that nub tight end look with the motion. Uh, but 17-0 is totally different than uh, 10-0 at the half. I mean, that's a three-score game. Even with two point conversions, you can't get a 17. So it's a three score game. And now you're a team that wants to be primarily a run team. And now, like you said, maybe now we have to pass the ball a little bit more, especially if USF's able to get a couple stops. Um, even if they go down and score that first drive, USF's able to get a couple stops. The next few drives, well, now we got to start pressing. We're not going to be able to run the ball as much as we did. Um, the rest of the third and fourth quarter there, which they still kind of stuck with the run game. I think they ended up running the ball like 30 more times than they passed. I think it was like 48 to 18 for the game or something pretty similar. Um, so, you know, if you're able to be up 17-0, which, you know, by my eye, which maybe is a little biased, but um, you should have been, you know, that totally changes the game there. Now they still had chances. USF still had chances to win the game and kind of um, and played really well. But, you know, that just one call being different maybe changes that game. And now you're coming into this week. Uh, only needing to split your last two games to go to a bowl game instead of needing to win both of them against two really good teams. It, it's kind of tough. You you look throughout the entire year of uh, missed opportunities, injuries, you know, what ifs, uh, you know, and it's it seems like when you're not as uh, Charlie Strong said, uh, I forgot. I think after the Georgia Tech game, you you can't afford to take, you can't afford to to be over penalized, and you can't afford. Uh, to make mistakes because yeah. the team isn't necessarily good enough to overcome that. Now, I don't think he's necessarily saying that about the talented talent of the players, but when you start taking points off the board and you look at you look at games in the past, uh, like the Georgia Tech game. Yeah, Mar- whatever, margins yeah. are super margins in Division One football, regardless kind of a talent. Uh, for the most part, I'd say outside of the really just talent, super juggernaut teams or the margins are really thin between teams. And so, yeah, if you're going to hurt yourself and take your own points off the board with penalties or fumbles at the goal line or that kind of stuff, yeah, it's, it's going to be tough, you know, to get going. It, it reminds me of one of my favorite uh, coaches sayings, and it, it's kind of in my head because I was watching a, uh, my wife wanted to watch a miracle. She loves uh, that movie about the miracle on ice. And one of her Brooks, the coaches, one of his like favorite sayings was we're not talented enough to win on talent alone. And that really describes most teams 
in college football. There's very few teams that can just go out and out town everybody. So, um, if you're, you know, if you're going to go out there and hurt yourself, it's going to be tough for you. And you've seen that in some of these games, um, that USF's been on the wrong end on where maybe a penalty or, uh, a silly mistake or a fumble at the goal line or just turning the ball over in a bad spot. It's kind of cost them, uh, probably a couple wins this year. It's interesting. Um, Kelly Joyner ended up having a great game, uh, ran for, uh, 76 yards and uh, had had a lot of nifty moves. He's he looks like he's going to be a player as a true freshman, but uh, he he had a costly fumble uh, that led to points for Cincy. And last week, uh, Terrence Horn had a fumble that led to points for Temple, or at least uh, took momentum off the board for USF. It's, it's no. uh, you know you can't you know you're not blaming anybody here or there, but it, it's those little things with these rager thin margins. I mean. You're, and you're not, both those guys, neither of those guys are, you know, you wouldn't say, well, that guy's battle tested. You know, mm-hmm. Terrence Horn is not a, he's a younger guy and he missed a lot of time with that injury. And now Kelly Joyner's a freshman, right? So, you know, you're having to play it. This is kind of, these are the things that happen when you have to play younger guys. You're going to have more penalties. You're going to have more, you know, mistakes like that were, you know, fumbles where maybe next year Kelly Joyner's like, it was kind of a fluke play regardless, but, you know, maybe next year Kelly Joyner's had like 15 of those kind of plays where he's in traffic and now he knows, hey, I got to really be two hands on the ball when I get in this kind of traffic, you know. So, um, you know, he's a guy that, especially him, he was a guy that was so much better than everybody he played against in high school. Um, he was kind of in, in the area I was coaching in kind of. Tan, not in, but kind of close. So you kind of heard about him and he was rushed for like over 2000 yards every year. He was unbelievable. So, you know, it's a new thing for him to, you know, try a new thing for him to get tackled really in some way. He was, he was unbelievable, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's kind of, it's something different. So the more he plays, the better he'll get. And, um, that's kind of just the unfortunate thing you get with playing with the young guys. And I think, I don't know. Tell me what you think about this. I think one of the biggest problems, not a problem necessarily, but something that um, Coach Strong could have done to help himself out is I don't think he really does himself any favors with how he um, he could frame the narrative. I think he could kind of frame the narrative to make himself to help himself out a little bit. And he he's really not really interested in that. He's always really professional. Um, you know, but he could have framed this narrative because it's true. They're playing a ton of young guys mm-hmm. and some coaches would have kind of used that as a crutch early in the year and really laid on that and kind of, you know, Hey, we're playing a lot of young guys, you know, really kind of, kind of really sold it to the fan base that, Hey, we're playing young guys. We're probably going to struggle a little bit this year. Like give us time type thing. But he's, he's never really been one to do that and make excuses. But, you know, there's other coaches that would have framed this thing from, you know, week two. Hey, we're, we're playing a lot of young guys. You know, we're probably going to struggle this year, but you know, we're going to be really good as the, you know, next couple of years. And, um, yeah. do you think that's something that could have helped him out? Like, uh, perception wise, if he would have framed it that way after, you know, after those first couple of weeks where you had to leave, you had to go away from Blake and, uh, you decided to go with a freshman quarterback and, uh, you know, Ford's in and out of the lineup and you just have, you know, Cronkite looks like he might be a little bit hurt or something. You know, you just have all these kind of little things going on. You know, your stud linebackers, you find out too, you know, the week of the game that he's not going to be able to play this year. So, you know, if he would have framed it, do you think that would have helped him out at all, perception wise? I got to be honest. I I think a lot of the fan base is a little frustrated with Charlie. And this is really based off of last year. Or uh, he he did frame to an extent that, hey, there's a lot of young guys playing, especially when the offensive line, you have a true freshman starting at center, a true freshman starting at left tackle. Or right tackle, rather. Um, so he used I, that bullet last year. <laughs> I, I, but I think, and 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 this is one of those things that it's very frustrating because you don't know how this actually happened. When Nathan on the teleconference asked him, "Are you thinking about making coaches changing out, changes after they lost to Houston?" And you know, now they're seven and one, mm-hmm. but. Each game going into that was you only win by eight points to a historically bad UConn. You have to get, take a field goal, a walk-off field goal to beat a a, a bad Tulsa team. Yeah. Things like that happening, people can see it. And then him saying, "Were we not seven and zero?" I think there's a lot of the fan base that are that sit back and go, "I don't know that I trust Charlie in a press conference or what I've he's seen, saying." I've, I'm not I've sure that, that I've seen that quote a few times on Twitter. Just and, a couple. And, and a, a lot of us, it's like, you know, it's. 
it's it was funny in context and now it's just a little old because he said it i obviously he didn't necessarily mean that but i think i think there was a bit of i I think a bit of this fan base is still a little bitter about what they thought that the the, uh, program was left off when taggart left yeah when Coach Strong came in, and do I think framing it that way is is best? Absolutely, especially since we've mentioned this before. Like the 2016 class, the last class before Strong came in, has two guys left on the roster. I mean, when you when you yeah. are lacking that much senior leadership, and don't get me wrong, guys like Kirk Livingstone, Mitchell Wilcox. Jordan Cron- Cronkright and um, Greg Reeves are, are being great leaders right now and picking their guys up. But when those are your only guys and the rest of your guys are, uh, you, I think you mentioned this before, transfers who are making the plays. Yeah, you got they, they kind of they supplemented the they were able to supplement the lack of upperclassmen recruiting on defense with transfers. You got guys like KJ Sales coming in, Patrick Macon, uh, Stud still, um, and all those guys are starters or key contributors. And, and Darius Slade is another one. He's a starter some weeks, uh, but he's playing a lot regardless. Um, so they, they kind of supplemented that. And then you, so you have those guys that, uh, you know, the defense is playing well, but you have four or five transfers that came in and started because they, you know, they recognize, they obviously recognize that, hey, we're, you know, there's some lacking in the recruiting. Um, I'm sure they try to get on a few more guys, uh, on the offensive line. Um, and that's probably something they're going to do this offseason as well. But, you know, they are playing a lot of young, even on defense, they're starting to play some young, young guys. They're, but, and, but offensively, I'd probably say, you know, um, you have Mitch and Kronk are probably your two best players offensively, but your next like four or five are all freshmen or sophomores. Um, and yeah, some of them didn't, some of them didn't play much last year either. So that's like your, your top seven players, most of them are, you know, freshman or sophomore. So, so with with that being said, and I know uh, there's a lot of frustration this year as we're kind of getting to the end of the yeah. year. You kind of look at how how difficult this strength of schedule was. I mean, no one really looked at SMU at the time as as a, a really like a tough team, but top 25 team only lost yeah. to Memphis, Wisconsin, a top 10 team. I mean, they ended up losing to Illinois, but I mean. Lovey Beard Power, Illinois yeah. Justin, as the uh, the mothership says. Um, I, you you get you get Cincinnati, who's a top seventeen team, might win the conference. You get Memphis this week, who's a top, who's uh, I think sixteen in the CFP. Yeah, I think they're they're now the highest rated uh, G five team, yeah. I believe. So so in a way, USF made Cincinnati lose a stop, spot. So maybe it happens with Memphis, and then you turn around and get UCF, who was in the top twenty five earlier, has has you know lost some games, but they're really talented. Yeah. I mean, and then BYU's going bowling. They beat USC, who's a top 25 team. I mean, I think the schedule strength, again, outside of that Georgia Tech game, which feels more like an anomaly just based on the youth of the uh, the youth of the season kind of not getting the concepts quite yet. But, I mean, if you watch the film room, every week they get a little bit better. And, I mean, you lose the last two games. And I think oh. if they played Georgia Tech now, they would just crush them. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just one of those things where you kind of get caught at the right moment. And um, and you still probably should have won that game if, uh, you know, the the call the goal line is called a touchdown, which is what it looked like instead of a fumble. But, you know, that's one that you probably win now. And I think Nate tweeted it out that – I believe USF has played every single team in the conference that's been ranked in the top 25 this year, which is a tough draw, obviously. Yeah, and that's just just over that when you start looking at the the storyline of the of the year. So, you know, we wrote the article about it, 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 is is this the end for Charlie? We've talked about the buyout. We talked about the the secret contract. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think going into the last two games? Based off what you've seen this entire time, do you think it really is time for Charlie Strong? Let's say the money is there. Would you really say that it's time to let him go, or just based on the based on the financial obligation, if it's that his contract is guaranteed, you you bring him back for 2020, knowing that Curran Bell and the offensive staff will get another year in, and historically, teams have gotten better with him 
year to yeah, year. The, there's, yeah, there tends to be a jump in that from year one to year two with him, um, especially now that he really has a better handle on his personnel. I, I, you'll hardly ever find me advocating for uh, a coach to be fired in year three, so he's kind of hasn't been able to really cycle um, – totally cycle his own team. And now he's kind of been able to do that a little bit with the transfers. And if you look at the transfers, I think the, the tough thing about it for him is that when you, you know, he seems to give his assistants um, pretty good leeway. I'd imagine it seems like in calling the games. And I, I mean, I, I wasn't here last year, so I don't know if he has a reputation for micromanaging that, but the recruiting is something I think that he gave his offensive staff in the past a lot of leeway on what kind of player they wanted to recruit and who they wanted to recruit. And it doesn't, for the most part, doesn't really fit um, what they're trying to do now. So I think that's why you see there was kind of a little bit of feeling out with how do I fit this personnel into this offense, which, you know, is, can be multi-personnel, you know, when, like when I played for Kerwin, we were a lot of 11 and uh, 21 personnel using a fullback and tight end. This was a long, long time ago. He's gone more spread stuff, but now this year is probably his top personnel groupings, 12 personnel uh, because it fits the roster best. Um, but if you look at the young guys they've recruited on defense, they've recruited some really good players defensively that are, that are pretty young. Uh, both those linebackers, Greer and Boyles, I think are both sophomores. And when I watched them on film last year, I didn't see a lot of boys. But when I watched Greer on film last year, I was like, oh, this guy, I don't know. And it's just one game, so I don't know, you know. But he's been unbelievable this year. He's a really good player. They obviously, they kind of, I think they know what they're doing on that side of the ball really well because those are the guys that have been with Strong the longest. And he's a defensive guy, so he can really kind of set the tone of this is the kind of player we're looking for. And they did that in their transfer market as well. Um, so I – I think that's kind of set him behind is the um, kind of the recruiting the offensive staff before, you know, the switch was made. I think they're recruiting better now. It certainly seems like it. There have been a couple uh, decommitments, but I have seen some people say that, hey, maybe some of these decommitments, maybe not necessarily the ones this week, but there have been at least two in the class. I think Will Turner of uh, was it Bulls 24-7. Is that what? But he's I think he was saying um that a couple of the decommits, maybe not necessarily the ones that happened this week, have been because these guys weren't going to qualify. So they're starting to look. They're basically saying, hey, you know, they're hey, you're not going to be able to qualify. You might want to start looking for other options. So it was more of a. It wasn't a. I'm jumping ship. This program's in the toilet. It's more of a. Hey, man, you're not going to be able to get into school here. You might want to, you know, expand your options a little bit. So. You yeah, know. you don't. Uh, uh, defensive tackle. Um, Gentle Hunt and running back Teron Keith are the decommits that happened the past uh, past week, week and a half. Um, and I don't know if it was them with that, but Will did say there's probably at least two decommitments that have happened in this class throughout the class that aren't because guys are trying to get off a sinking ship is more that they it's an academic thing. So, and I don't know if it's with those two guys or other two guys. I don't. You know, he didn't say it was with the most recent two, so don't kind of apply that to those guys. I'm sure they mm-hmm. are taking care of business in the classroom, but some of the guys haven't, and so that's why you're seeing some movement in the class. But um, what they have committed is pretty good right now, especially at the kind of the top end of it. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting to see. I mean, two quarterbacks is huge, especially uh, Tate Rotomaker from Valdosta, Georgia, which shares the stadium with uh, Kerwin's old program of Valdosta State. Uh, There's a lot of talent here. There's a lot of speed guys. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that because a couple guys decommit, you're still – if you kind of follow the the, the recruiting season, you get a lot during the summer. And then when the dead period starts during the season, uh, you will see some guys decommit, whether they start getting more action elsewhere, uh, the current program stops recruiting them as hard. And then Mm -hmm. when the – in in December, right before – um, the early signing period, you'll start seeing it pick up again. So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't seem like unless there's some sort of coaching change or something happens that you'll see a mass exodus. And, I mean, it, it, it'll be interesting to see as, as these last two games happen, if they end up being losses or whatnot. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of I'm with you. Like I said, I'm not really – I don't really like to – 
opine about what the coaching staff could be or will be. And I, and I just season, don't think, but, I don't think it solves any of your problems. Yeah. Um, to as much as it may be cathartic for some subsection of the fans, it doesn't solve the problems. I think the problems, and I've said this in the past, I think the problems got masked um, by Quentin Flower, how good he was. I mean, he was able to kind of drag this team to a bunch of wins when maybe they weren't that good. And he was just so good. He can kind of take them to it. And there was flaws within the program. And now I wasn't paying, um, I was coaching, so I wasn't paying really close attention to anybody, but, um, but there's obviously some flaws in the program. And if they didn't have Blake Barnett transferring last year, what would have the, the season been like then? I mean, you kind of know better than me. Would last year have been a really, I mean, it ended up being tough kind of at the end there. But what would last year have been like if Blake Barnett never transferred in? We've actually kind of briefly talked about this with Ryan T. Smith. If like uh, Chris Alodikin or Brett Keen is your starter, you likely don't beat Georgia Tech and start out 7-0. and But I'd like to think that they would probably steal a win or two from from one of the ends there and you probably still end up seven and six or six and seven uh you know uh, go to a bowl game in that sense yeah. or you know maybe you catch fire with chris is having a heck of a year at samford yeah. right now who transferred out um mostly because of what happened to him at the end of the season um especially during the gasparilla bowl i um you, you don't know you don't know if maybe they stick around and then they're in year two and you still you still get kerwin bell who knows but uh and uh, isn't that uh, the Ola? Is it Ola Dukin? Is that uh, Ola Dukin, I believe. Ola Dukin. and he's uh, from what I've heard, he'd be like the perfect guy for Kerwin, right? He's a, he can run in, pass. He's an athletic guy, but he's a really good passer too. Is that the rap yeah. on him? Yeah, he can sling it. Um, yeah. it, it was unfortunate when he left, but com- completely understood knowing the the situation. So we, we've had conversations about that, but it's hard to it's hard to speculate with uh, you know with with what happens, so many different things can happen over the course of a season, injuries and at all, et cetera. So I, I think if, unless you had like the, one of the top recruiters in the country here after Taggart left, I think his last two classes, I really think like, I think he was swinging for the fences and Nate kind of said he was kind of swinging for the fences his last class and saying, Hey, you know, I've been recruiting pretty well, but you know, there, according to, um, and this is something that I don't think, um, the ta- the talent was really good for Taggart the whole time he was here. Um, I think some people think it only got good right before he left. According to this guy that does, um, he's like, I think he's CFB Matrix on Twitter, but he, he does analytics and he sells analytics to athletic departments when they're looking for coaches. He basically rates coaches on how they perform relative to the talent they have on their team relative to their opponent's talent is, and how he kind of rates coaches. Um, according to him, USF was the most talented team in the conference every year under Taggart. According to what he saw, what his recruit, like the recruiting rankings that he compiles. Um, but Taggart, he's, he, his, his take was that Taggart underperformed, underperformed his talent. Um, but they were talented every single year. And I thought, you know, he knew he had a talented team. So when you're kind of already talented, maybe you can go for that really special guy and, you know, if you're him, you're thinking, well, maybe I'm leaving. So if I miss, it's all right. Um, and then I think a couple of those guys, he ended up that he probably missed on a USF. He ended up getting them to sign on with him in Oregon. So um, he was recruiting kind of the t- upper tier and he's kind of going for it. I'm sure the fans were, you know, you know, you, you got to be glad that you're going for these guys and you're not afraid of the competition. But um, when you miss as much as he did, I think his last couple of classes and just signing a real solid class. And that's the problem that was coming down the bend regardless of who you had a head coach, unless there was a really, really good recruiter that can kind of balance those out, which um, I think they thought strong might be a little bit better at recruiting, but they, they didn't really hit the ground running. Uh, they got some good players, but the depth I think wasn't there in a couple of classes and it seems to be turning around. So that's slowly, so now that he's kind of getting his best recruiting class going, this is when you want to fire him. I don't know. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm starting to slowly as seeing how last year was and this year, especially just the, the progression. And I know it's disappointing and I know it sucks, especially when the, uh, the team up east is, is doing better, especially what they've done the past few years. I, I don't really see a reason to at this point, especially if it means, yeah, cause if you're going to start from zero again, who are you going to go out and get? 
Yeah. Who can you go out and afford? And now you're starting again at zero with a brand new offensive staff. So you're going to have to march. And you're starting, and you're, you're, I'd imagine you'd be starting with a brand new everything. And you might, as much as they can't spend the money that's dedicated to the indoor, well, maybe you lose some donations then because I'm giving money for this other thing. I'm not going to double dip. Exactly. Um, so, and then, you know, I think some people have brought up um, the North Texas head coach is, well, that's a guy. Let's go get him. Well, he's a Texas guy his whole life, and they just built an indoor. So why would he leave where he's from and go to somewhere that doesn't have as good of facilities? So it's kind of – I think as as much as it's going to – you know, and they they may end up firing Coach Strong. I don't know. But, I, you know, it's year three. As disappointing as last year was and this year has been at times, I think this year is a little bit more – um, you can kind of explain away some of the issues more than you could have last year where it seemed like they kind of just fell off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And this year you can kind of see they seem to be getting better. Um, you know, this is their, if they would put this, if they would put the Temple game and the Cincinnati game at the start of the season, I don't think either are nearly as close as they were, uh, cause they've gotten better as the year's gone on. Exactly. Uh, uh, put it on the flip side. Let's say something happens and Strong is no longer the coach in 2020. You want to sell me on head coach Kerwin Bell? Yeah, all right, I'll do. Uh, <laughs> he's, uh, first of all, I think he's going to be, um, I think you're seeing it already. He's going to be a good recruiter. Um, your best recruiters, probably two of your best recruiters on staff are not even able to recruit because one of them is his son, Cade, who also called plays for him. And uh, I believe the other kid's name is Robustelli, who coached receivers for him at Valdosta State. Both are young guys. Uh, the players really like them. I know the players of Valdosta State really like them. Uh, they understand what Kerwin wants to run. Uh, so there's no kind of difference between, um, you know, you're not having to teach anybody your system. They, these guys know it, and they know how to be really successful with it and how to coach it really well. Um, he's a guy that has won at every single level he's been at. He coached high school. He won a state championship and. I think the fourth year of varsity football or something to that effect, it was pretty quick. Um, I think I was on the third year team and we won the district championship. The next year they won the state championship and got back to the title game the year after. Then he got offered the job at JU who um, just for instance, kind of the tradition of JU, their non-scholarship football. Um, they started, I think the late nineties, they'd never really been any good. Uh, now they're kind of back to more historical levels of where they've been. And I believe they're like 123rd and, in, in the SP plus for division one double a out of, you know, there's a few more teams, I think, than, than one a, but they're about 123rd and, uh, Kerwin had them in the top 25 or pretty close to it when he was there his last couple years without scholarships. Um, so they're competing against the top 25 scholarship teams. And then he goes to Valdosta State after after he leaves Jacksonville. And after three years, they go undefeated, have like the best offense in Division II history, and they win the national championship game, uh, scoring like 45 or 50 points or something crazy. And they average like 50 points a game or something nuts. And um, I think he's a guy that I think one thing people are worried about with is how with how the offense has performed this year is exciting the donor base especially. But he's a guy that will, you know, his job, I don't, I think his job when his coach in high school was he was like a fundraising guy. And that was kind of one of his jobs with the high school was fundraising. And being a head coach your whole career, he's understands, especially at smaller schools, that you have to fundraise to survive, especially at the lower levels. Um, you're not going to get as much booster engagement as you are at the higher levels. And there's not as much tradition there. So you really got to go out and um, shake hands and kiss babies. And Andy's a Florida guy and he'll do that. And he's got good relationships with the high school coaches all around the state. And quite a few of them are guys that have coached with him or in prominent positions at pretty good schools now. Um, so, I mean, to me, I think it would be a slam dunk. I think he'd do really well. I think he would excite the fan base. Um, after a few interviews, I know he did even in spring as the offensive coordinator, but he's still, you could tell, watch him on the sidelines that, you know, he still hasn't quite shed that head coach, um, you know, the, that way of thinking because you'll see him screaming at officials when 
uh, what looked like was a clip on one of the Cincinnati long runs. You can see him screaming at the official, calling for a flag. So, um, I think I think he would do a good job. Obviously, I'm biased, but he does have a track record uh, to back it up too. Well, I think it's good to hear. I just wanted to get you on the pedestal to talk about uh, offensive coordinator Kerwin Bell. Any any time. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm with you overall. I think I think there there, there won't be a change, uh, whether it's financial, whether it's anything else. I think settling in and getting the the shovel in the ground and getting this facility built needs to be priority number one. And going away from that is just going to be delaying the inevitable. And if, and if you do think, I think if you do think that, okay, this is inevitable, you got to get rid of strong. You want the next guy to come in running, you know, you want the next guy to come in feet on the ground, a hundred miles an hour, being able to say, Hey, look, this facility is going to be ready next year. When you enroll, this facility is ready. Like, you don't want him to be like, all right, well, we had a facility plan. This is the plan. I'm going to show you the blueprints and I'm going to show you the, the video, the mock-ups of it, you know, um, when he's first starting. You can let somebody hit the ground running. If you think that's going to be inevitable, well, once those shovels go on the ground, then whoever comes in next is hitting the ground running, especially in recruiting, because he has actual tangible things to sell and not ideas. And I think that's a very fair point. It's it's hard to do that now in the transition when it's up. And I, 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 I'll, I'll be the first one to say it sucks. It sucks to see this. It sucks to see the downward trend. But uh, I don't see until the facilities get better, until the donorship gets better, until you're able to kind of build those relationships more, that it's going to uh, – that you, we were missing the forest or the trees. And the one thing I do agree with, and Colin Sherwin's – uh, said this numerous times. The right guy's in the place. If Michael Kelly can't make it done, then nobody can, or can't, can't make it happen, then nobody can. So I, I I I believe in him. So if 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 this is what ends up happening, I'm completely okay with that. But as we've seen, there is progression. This was a very tough year, uh, schedule wise versus a, a lot of teams in that top 25. And at the at, at the end of the day, hopefully they can steal one of these games at the end. Uh, Memphis is going to be tough and. Uh, we'll all be looking forward to watching your watching film on Memphis and uh, senior day is going to be a tough matchup, but you could steal that. You could steal one in Orlando. Then you start having something you can progress on. I just, uh, I really wish they could have, have that bowl game, not necessarily for the bowl game. We all know that the bowl games aren't necessarily great at six and six, but you get those two extra weeks of practice with all the freshmen, sophomores on this team. That would have been huge. Yeah. I got a question for you, a hypothetical Shoot, my friend. All right, let's say, all right, in one hypothetical, they win last week. And I come to you and I say, listen, Vito, they can, I can guarantee a win this week against Memphis and a loss next week, but you'll make a bowl game. Or it happens like it happened. They lost they lost last week. They need to win the last two. I tell you, they're going to lose to Memphis, but they will they will beat UCF. They won't make a bowl game. But they will win the final game. Would you rather have that or the bowl game? Uh, I would rather beat my rival. I think you can talk to eighty percent of the fan base will probably say the same thing. I don't think they really care about going to the Boca Raton Bowl no. and losing to UCF. But if they can beat them, especially after the last couple of years, I, 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 and you know, I, I hate to be that guy that's like it's all about your rival. All you have to do is beat your rival. That's all that matters because that's not what matters. But if you're not competing for a conference championship, I don't. I would prefer to have that game put that feather in your cap. At least you can go forward and say the last two years are, are under strong. We lost to them, but this year you beat them. Now, granted, if you were if you told me Cincinnati, Memphis, you beat two top twenty five teams, that's pretty big, and then you actually have some momentum going in as well. Yeah. So not a bad. But I guarantee, I guarantee surprise. that you lose to UCF, and this yeah, other one, I, I guarantee just, you beat them. I just I I do not. In any in any in any case outside of it gets us to a conference championship game. What I say, I would like to lose to UCF. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying that because I'm going to be at that game and that's going to be something. But it, it's just, I I, I think I think you have some built-in things there too. You you win in the rivalry, you stop the bleeding after two losses, you go up again in the head the head to head, the war and I four, all that crap. I think that's and a big, uh, recruits that's a big like possible and that's really going to be tough but that's like a big release valve on all this pressure if they're somehow able to go up there and win i think a lot of this pressure will kind of ease off oh they're going in the right direction you'll probably hear a lot now that's gonna be a really tough game to win but i think that's what would happen if they did 
And I, I think it's funny. I think it's based on what they've done in 17 and 18 has made what's happening now that much more stressful for USF fans. Yeah. Now, I, a lot of us can, again, see the forest with the trees and go, like, that's just how the cookie crumbles sometimes. It happens. Mm-hmm. They had to they had to crater to kind of arise from that. And that yeah, I saw – I was on the sideline when they lost to Furman. Were you now? I was. I uh, that was – that was side. a game. <laughs> so I was on the side. I was on the Furman sideline when they lost that game. I got invited to the game by a, a Furman booster I know, and he was on the sideline because he used to play for him. And so I was on there. I saw them. I saw their worst season live in living color. They were terrible, much Man. worse than anything USS put out the last few years. But I just, yeah, Paladins must have been on cloud nine. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> All right, so uh, moving on to something a little more exciting. Let's. Uh, Let's move on to soccer, or as 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 the uh, the Europeans say, football. Yes, I've I've been studying for this team for about five minutes, so I feel pretty informed that I'm ready to give an opinion on this team. So I watched the entirety of the UF USF game, and one thing I can say is Evelyn Evelyn Viens, my goodness, she might be the best. Um, not even just female player, but player in USF history. The way that she, the way that she can just take over an entire game. But USF wins 4-2 in Gainesville when they probably should have hosted. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll get to that in the next podcast where uh, Colin and Nate can uh, talk about how frustrating that whole situation is. But they go into Gainesville, win 4-2, and they move on to the NCAA tournament where they get to face number four Washington. In Tallahassee. Up, up in Tallahassee, um, you know, I'll just throw out some stats because that's all I'm good for because I don't even want to try to pronounce some of these names and I don't know anything about it. So, uh, Stat time. There you go. But um, kind of you, you mentioned the, that Florida hosted and the only kind of the only possible reason I could find for why that could possibly be was that they were one rank, they were ranked a little bit higher. In RPI, they were 23rd and USF was 24th, which is still probably not the best measure of, you know, not the greatest measure of strength. For instance, Washington's 18th in RPI, but when you go to the poll that's done by, I guess, it's called the United Soccer Coaches, so you know it's legit. Um, USF is 17th, and Washington and Florida are both receiving votes, so they're both probably... Uh, if you counted the receiving votes, they'd be in a tie for 27th, and USF is rated 17th. Um, just kind of looking through it, the other stat I thought was interesting about USF soccer is um, in comparison to Wisconsin. So USF has scored 41 goals this year. Uh, I'm sorry, not Wisconsin, Washington. Washington has scored 26. So USF is averaging like 2.1 goals a game. Washington's averaging 1.3. Um, the really interesting thing about USF is how many shots they have per game and how many more shots they have than their opponent. Um, I believe, just looking at the stats quickly, that they have outshot every single team they've played, which, you know, you can't, uh, you can't score if you don't shoot, right? So when you outshoot your opponent, you've probably got a good chance of scoring. And they've, they've, um, I think all but this last game against Florida, they've actually led in shots on goal as well. So it's not, they're just not, it's not like spray and pray either. Um, for the season, they're up over 200 on their opponents in shots and they're over a hundred. They have 164 shots on goals and their opponents have 64. Um, Washington. Yeah. So, so, um, for example, uh, just to compare, uh, shots, USF is at 351. Washington is at 266 for the season. So you're averaging about five more shots a game and their opponents, USF's opponents are only averaging 7.4 shots a game, whereas Washington's are averaging Ten and a half per game, so they're 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 a little bit more close to even on shots per game. Um, and then USF, like I said, they've had the advantage in every single game in shots and shots on goal. So um, if they can just keep peppering the ball at the goal, and you know they probably have the, I would imagine they would have the best player on the field, which they have in probably most of their games this season. Um, that's the recipe in my in my educated opinion for a big upset. On Friday, around around 
Oh, 3.30, maybe 4 o'clock if you give a little halftime. There you go. Uh, Evelyn Veens earns her third National Player of the Week award this season uh, with her hat trick. She now owns the uh, USF single season record for most hat tricks in a career. Sorry, uh, she holds the most hat tricks in a career at USF, the single season goal scoring record at USF, and also for the AAC. She just kind of takes over every game that she plays in, but was not chosen to be in the Canadian uh, national team. So there's that. Uh, this is just comeback season for them. They, in the conference tournament, they, 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 they beat UCF. They lost them on the road in the regular season. They beat Memphis in the final. They lost to them on the road in the regular season. They lose to, to UF one nothing in a game where they outshot them and they come back and win 4-2. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens if they, if they can come out and get a, get a big upset and make a, make a real run here with one of the best athletes in USF history, we are all witnesses. Or, and, that, um, and, that Mem- and that Memphis team was ranked eighth in the United Soccer Coaches poll, which, like I said, is probably the most official poll you could have uh, based on my intel. So that was a good Memphis team they beat. So they're kind of on a they're on a roll here to end the season. And if you haven't gotten a chance to watch them, try to watch this game. They're a lot of fun. They they can run fast. They defend hard. They have a really good sophomore uh, goalkeeper. Um, it's a fun team to watch. And this is someone who really just got into soccer like the last two years. So um, it's absolutely great. Uh, let's talk about the men who will play in the NCAA tournament uh, first round against Louisville. Um, they beat Louisville earlier in the year 2 nothing at home. So it. It's kind of, again, frustrating that they get seeded with Louisville again. But um, if they get past Louisville, they actually have a fairly uh, decent shot to get to go a little further. Um, the, the bracket lines up nicely for them outside of that one game. But again, Louisville is a top 10 team, so uh, that they're not to be taken lightly. Yeah, I have no men's uh, I have no men's soccer uh, tabs open in front of me, so I'll just go to cliches. Uh, tough to beat a team twice. Um <laughs> you know, but if, if they play hard and they can follow the same game plan and, and take it one game at a time, I think they have a really good chance at advancing in the tournament here. They'll, uh, they'll play Louisville on Thursday, so that'll be interesting to see if they can they can follow up. I um I saw Michael Kelly tweet. I think yeah, he said USF was one of fourteen programs in the nation to have the, both their men's and women's teams go in the NCAA tournament. And uh, I know you're in Florida, so it's a great place to play soccer. But I mean, that's really good. Uh, Buhorn's got his team finally rolling after uh, not being in, uh, in the in the NCAA tournament since 2016. So um, both the men and the women's team are clicking right now. So let's see if they can build on that momentum and uh, move a little forward in the postseason. There, I'm predicting uh, two Bulls victories there, one on Thursday, one on Friday. So everyone get excited, uh, and then we'll round off the week on Saturday. I see he did not predict a Bulls victory on Saturday. So, uh, again, we'll see in the watching film what that means. But what the heck? They'll get the three-peat. I really there thought, you I, go. Three in a row. I, I really thought they would win on Saturday because it was my birthday weekend, and I was doing this whole thing like they all lost. But volleyball lost anyway, so it didn't really matter. Wow. Um, I'm trying to find that. Yeah, one of only 14 schools in the country and the only one in the American Conference to have both their men's and women's soccer teams qualify for the NCAA tournament. That's a heck of an accomplishment. <laughs> there you go. Soccer capital, Florida. There you go. There you go. So um, let's move on to women's basketball. Um, I don't know if you saw, but Tuesday night, Jose Fernandez's squad hard, fought hard and uh, lost to number two Baylor at Baylor. Our very own Jamie DeVrind was there. He uh, he drove up from Dallas to Waco. He he took the hit and uh, watched the game, which is great because normally we send him to Dallas or to the SMU games and they get smoked like 80 to 40. So he got to actually see a very good game. Um, uh, USF played really tough. Bethy Manunga, I, she I, is my new favorite player. My goodness, she's a double-double machine. And against a team that is very good down low and has a lot of length and height, in the paint, they were able to out-rebound them and out-muscle for some some really good points. What killed them is, ironically, the three-point shot um, and free throws again. They shot five for five for 13 from the free throw line and had 19 turnovers. So uh, 
most coaches will tell you you cannot do that against the number two team in the country and expect to come out with a victory. But outside of that, it was still a sloppy game, uh, a sloppy, really grungy game, but they were in it the entire way. Yeah, I think the free throw disparity is something a lot of people were looking at. Um, I know, like you said, that Baylor likes to pound the ball inside. They're really tall. They don't shoot a lot of threes. But uh, Baylor ended up shooting 39 free throws to USF's 13, and they ended up making 25 of 39. USF made 5 of 13. So there's 20 points right there just at the free throw line, and it was a 12-point game in the final. So that's kind of a big, big part of the game right there. It's just you, you end up kind of you end up almost losing points at the free you lose the game almost at the free throw line. Uh, they seem to play well enough to win at every other facet, and uh, you know sometimes you don't get those whistles on the road, especially when you're the lower ranked team. Yeah, I mean it was tough. There were some times I was I'm thinking, man, these guys are going to get injured, but uh, the the refs held the whistle, and unfortunately, if you're not driving in, uh, I really think the game plan was right. I mean, we even kind of briefly talked about it as. Uh, that this is the type of team you have to shoot over, and the fact that they shot so poorly from three point line, oh, uh, consistent with what they've been statistically so far, uh, it's it interesting to see that they were still that close. I think this defense is really solid, and the big question everyone's asking is, can they give UConn a run for their money? And yes, I mean, I think defensively they finally have that, and um, this team is really good, and Nate's brought this up numerous times. They have a lot of talent on the outside, and now with Manunga down low, they, they put that with Henshaw. And, and they have a lot of good talent on this team, and uh, Jose knows how to recruit them and coach them. So uh, don't get discouraged by that loss. I think that's I think it's a perfectly fine effort that they had, and Jose wants to play tough at a conference game. So they get Notre Dame in Cancun uh, Thanksgiving weekend. It'll it'll be interesting if they can uh, beat a suddenly vulnerable Notre Dame team. Um, and even even with that last, even with a twelve point loss to Baylor, which as you know everybody that watched the game saw, it was probably a lot closer than that twelve point margin. They're still averaging uh, a winning uh, scoring margin of plus fifteen on the season. So um, even with the kind of tighter games against uh, pretty good teams in Texas and Baylor, where you you kind of split those. You're still averaging a 15 point victory every time you go out, which is, you know, nuts. They're just, they're just suffocating people on defense. Nobody scored over Baylor. That's the highest point total they've given up this season, I believe, which was 58. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're kind of just suffocating people out there. And then when they're hitting shots, they're going to be really, really tough to beat. They held, uh, Baylor to, uh, they're the first team to hold Baylor under 90 this year. <laughs> so that 58. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Pretty good in comparison. So um, we learned today that uh, five-star uh, shooting guard Elena Seneki. Seneki? Seneki? See, it starts with a T. It's Greek. I should know this. I went to Tarpon Middle, so I have a little bit of Greek in me, uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, was uh, deemed eligible to play immediately. Uh, Would have been nice to have her last uh, yesterday. But you know, as a, as a as a newcomer, you probably don't throw them out in a game like that on hostile on the road. But um, uh, a really good three point shooter and another uh, another European uh, battle tested uh, guard on the roster. And we'll yeah, see what uh, according to her bio, she was a member of the Greece U uh, eighteen team at the twenty seventeen FIBA Women's European Championship, where she averaged twenty one point one points, five point six rebounds, and three point seven assists a game. Which is pretty good. And then she's uh, going to be moving up to the U-20 national team and the senior national team for Greece. So she is uh, one of the best players from her home country. And she's come to Tampa for her collegiate career. I'm I'm just looking at the roster. Tamara Henshaw is the only senior on the squad. (laughs) Hmm. There is a lot of freshmen and sophomore. Yeah, I think that the, the, the uh, we were kind of talking about off pod, but the the recruiting strategy has just been you know really really smart, like a real really smart differentiator between yourself and other programs, and he's kind of got uh, you know like a first mover advantage because uh, just talking with Colin, he said other teams are starting to get out to Europe now, but they were kind of the first one there, and they have this established pipeline, and and then I think you know in the women's game. Um, 
I think it, they put an onus on skill more than uh, athleticism or physicality. I think um, the women's game at times is more skilled than the men's game. And usually, typically, um, and I don't know if it trans- translates exactly, but um, the men's game, a lot of times European guys are more skilled. They spend a lot of more time on skill development. Um, so if that translates to the women's game, you're getting players that are tailor-made to play the system you want to play that are really good players that you're not having to necessarily fight the Yukons, the the Baylors and the other big schools of the world for you kind of been able to go out and kind of create a create a market almost for for finding players and really be the leader in that and like you said a lot of freshmen and sophomores so they should be pretty good for years to come and in addition to uh getting the best talent internationally not to fighting it in uh the u.s they also play a lot of the you know under 19, under 20, uh, international competitions. So a lot of them have a, have good minutes under their belts when they come here already playing competitively internationally. So it's, it's, you can get these, you can get a freshman who can come in and give you quality minutes right off the bat. Um, especially if you can get them qualified, which is huge. So, uh, shout out to Michael Kelly and the, uh, uh, the, the, the ninjas over at the compliance office for getting, these international uh, signees eligible uh, in 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 season, so it's it's big. Um, and, and then you signed the uh, Maria Alvarez girl from Miami. Then I, I heard she's won she won six state championships in high school. That's absurd. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> she is going to be very she's going to be amazing. And uh, and that's another thing. I think she was like one for ten or something like that in the game. Probably her worst game of the season. So if she if she shoots just at her averages, maybe you win that game. Because she's very talented. Oh, she was uh, two for nine and then one for eight from three. So if she shoots at her averages, then, you know, then maybe that's a game you go in there and steal. So I think there's probably a lot more positives uh, to take away from that game than negatives, even though it's probably a tough one to go in there and lose. Like I said, Jose is not afraid to schedule these out-of-conference games. And then next year you lose UConn. So you might be looking at uh, the USF as the new UConn and women's and American Athletic Conference women's basketball, although that likely brings the the conference's RPI down. Um, moving on to the men's, uh, this is the first pod we have since they've lost to IUPUI. That was just a tough game, top to bottom. We also learned that Mayan Kerr is no longer with the program. Um, it's a tough loss. You lose Mayan Kerr, you lose Alexis Yetna. It's just, it's not exactly what you expect, and it goes back to uh, can't have nice things. Only one basketball team can be good at a time, apparently. Yeah, but the women are really good, so you know, oh, yeah. it kind of makes up for it, right? Having one like super elite team is, I think, um, uh, will will make up for it. Uh, luckily, uh, Brian Gregory's doing great on the recruiting trail. They signed, in addition to four-star Caleb Murphy, their third highest recruit ever. They signed uh, center forward Emmanuel Okpomo from... Oak Hill Academy, which is uh, one of the top pro- pro- programs in the country for men's basketball, for a long time. I think didn't uh, I think Carmelo Anthony was there? They've been like churning yeah. out stud players for a long, long time. Carmelo, Katie, Rod Strickland are the three that uh, we linked in the article for sure. It's pretty. But he's got a seven foot seven wingspan. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> That's if he's got if he's got two kids running in opposite directions, they're not going anywhere. I'm sure he can't wait to be a dad, so he can really put that to use. Not making millions of dollars, but you know, being a it's so far, It's a so far for Oak Hill. His uh, seven games, he's averaging six rebounds a game, nine steals, and 15 blocks. Nine steals. We just stick your arm out there, like no one's. <laughs> uh, well, I so. think there. I think there is kind of a with basketball being so early. I think it's probably not prudent to get two down on the team this early. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have. Kentucky, who's a perennial powerhouse, losing to Evansville and then almost losing to Utah Valley, who I don't think anybody could point to either of those schools on a map if you gave them quite a few tries. So, you know, it's it's been I think it's been a tough start, but that doesn't mean the season's totally lost either. You 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 kind of have um, you have that shock at the beginning of losing two players you expected to have and probably two really key players. And now you give your coach time to adjust, and uh, you know he's a he's a good coach. So you give him that time to make that adjustment, and you want to be playing your best basketball towards the end of the year. 
um, anyway. So hopefully you can kind of get them in the right direction and get that going. Yeah, it'll likely be tough in the out of conference slate. They're gonna try to they're gonna have to figure out life without Alexis Yetna and now life without Mayan Kerr with not a lot down down low outside of those guys. When you expect those guys to have significant minutes, uh you'll be playing a lot of freshmen who probably weren't going to play this season. So we'll see what happens. I, I think we all agree Brian Gregory's a great coach. I mean they lose seventy to fifty three to IUPUI, which I'm sure you a lot of people couldn't figure out what that even stands for. Uh I know I had to look it up. <laughs> but it's, what, what is it Indiana was it Indiana, Pennsylvania? Yeah, right. and then Indianapolis I mean, at the end there. That's not even see. That's like that's two different states. I mean, it's like an all-star team, basically. Yeah, exactly. You see, what are you going to so, do there? Uh, Indiana and Pennsylvania. I mean, what are you what are you supposed to do? Yeah, uh, they'll play Wofford on Thursday, which will be today when you listen to this. So we'll see what happens. That's the first home game of uh, the, I'm sorry, the final campus game of the uh, before they go to the Cayman Islands for that tournament. So Wofford was the tournament team last year. So we'll see what they can do there and see what the. I mean, they had a week to prepare. So uh, we'll see what Gregor can do. Yeah, and then well, I think what the good thing about uh, the men's team is they are probably going to, um, from my understanding, they're going to defend like crazy. So even though they've kind of uh, lost a couple of really good players and one of their better offensive players, if you have that defensive identity and those guys really latch onto that and Coach Gregory is able to kind of get them to buy into that, you can keep yourself in games even though you may not be as talented as you're hoping going into the year. So hopefully they can kind of latch onto that defensive identity and and ugly up some games and get out a few wins that way. And then as they kind of get the roster kind of um, – Everybody in the, their role they're going to be playing, which them may have had to change a little bit. You know, hopefully you get that going, and then um, those guys will, will settle in, and as the year goes on, they'll get better offensively. But if they could just kind of dig into that defensive identity they've had in the past, and they still have some players on the team that are really good defenders. So um, kind of just bear into that and see where it takes you. Yes, the best offense is a good defense, but it, it doesn't hurt when uh, you miss your last 11 shots of the game. So, um, no, they'll, <laughs> that doesn't help. Uh, they'll, um, we'll, we'll see what happens there, but I mean, we're, we're fully on the Brian Gregory, uh, bandwagon. So, uh, I, 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 he'll, he'll get it figured out. Now, whether or not the expectations that we had prior to knowing all, all the injuries, are going to happen probably not but still support the team and again the women's team is still really really good so hopefully you can come out to a couple games so um a big slate this week going into next week and uh even though football is coming to an end we have both basketball teams going strong both soccer teams are in the are in the ncaa tournament uh not so bad for the fall sport so far yeah i think that's it and this the saturday senior day so um you know, I think there's some guys that have been there through some good times and bad times, stuck with the program for four years. Always good to go out and support uh, your seniors in your program. So um, even if you're maybe upset with the coaches, you've got some seniors that have really given a lot to the university and are, have been really good representatives of the university, especially um, through tough times uh, and at their age is really, really uh, commendable. Um, for these guys like Kirk Livingstone and Mitch Wilcox to come and speak after games and Greg Reeves and those kind of guys to come and speak, um, to the media after, you know, things haven't gone their way and there's been disappointments and nobody's pointed fingers, nobody's blamed anybody else. They've all stood there, answered questions, um, and given good, thoughtful answers. Um, so I think those are the kind of guys you need to come out and support. So hopefully, uh, crowd they'll get a good crowd for those guys for their senior day and uh, really go out and support guys that have really given a lot to the university yeah you if you can go out and support the seniors this is the last home game for them it would be great to get them a good ovation and i always always want to want to support the the guys who stick around for this program especially the ones who uh, could have left early but decided not to and have stuck it through through thick and thin uh, it's always good to support them Yep. Well, I think that about wraps it up for uh, the Baluminati podcast. I say it was a raging success. I uh, I agree as well. So let us know in the comments if uh, the Seth and Vito edition was all it's cracked up to be. We uh, can always we can always spin off if we need to. Exactly. We we very much could. That that would actually be hilarious. We'll uh we'll watch uh, TMNT uh, reruns too while we're doing it. Just add a little flair. 
That's right. You, have you have you seen the uh, the toys that made us Ninja Turtle episode? I don't know. I didn't actually. Oh, so have you ever heard of the Netflix series? All right, we can talk about it off by, but you know, Ninja Turtles always a, that's always worth a win in my household. I I agree, especially that video game. All right, so Blue Blue Money Podcast brought to you by Matrix Hormones. That phone number is eight one three 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 two 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 six. Eight one three 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 two 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 six. Right, three field goals, three safeties, one touchdown without the extra point. No extra point. Does that mean we missed a kick? Not gonna go there. Male treatments, female treatments, weight loss programs. To see all the treatments, go to this website, matrixhormones.com. Matrix hormones. They'll get all you right. straightened out like you hoped a couple of the kicks would have been the other night. Oh, that, hurts my heart. Is that too much? Well, too, too soon. All right. Go Bulls. Go Bulls.